Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah. Uh, we'll be looking at chapters 34 and 35 uh, this morning. We'll be reading the entire chapters, but parts of them. We're going to start in chapter 34, and verses 6 through 11. Jeremiah 34, verses 6 through 11. Uh, If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that uh, on page 663. Beloved saints, this is God's Word. Uh, He gives it to us that we might know Him and be like Him. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah. For these were the only fortified cities in Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. Let us pray that the Lord would meet us in his word this morning. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and you are greatly to be praised. We long to know you, to know your attributes, your character, and your works. And it's these that you have recorded for us in your word. You've preserved through the ages that each generation might come afresh and behold your grace, your love, and your power. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and hearts to behold its treasures. Allow us to gaze upon your beauty and splendor. Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. By, I think by and large, we as a society have come to look for and depend upon uh, big events. We've talked about this before, but we like the flashy, we like the exciting, we crave those significant and momentous occasions. We want to be part of events that make the news. But then, what happens with events that make the news? Well... Our news cycles are increasingly short. So what makes headlines this morning is forgotten tonight. We have short memories. Nothing lasts. And so tomorrow, the quest for the exciting, the big, the significant begins all over again. And the casualty of this is persistence. We don't value the steady the reliable, the dependable. We trust liars today because we forget about the lies they told yesterday. And we doubt the, the, those that uh, we are trustworthy because today's a new day and they must prove themselves all over again. 
We value the meteoric rise to fame of a business leader more than that of a, the faithful mother or father who has steadfastly loved and cared for their children over decades. Something is desperately wrong with what we value. And the church, we, we can't claim innocence. This love affair with the big and the notable has carried over and ensnared the church. We seek celebrity leaders more than we seek faithful shepherds. We're more likely to come and listen to a new convert with a dramatic story than to listen to a quiet saint who has walked faithfully with Jesus for 70 years. And this affects how we see faith. We place our confidence in raised hands and in walking to the front and in praying a prayer. Don't get me wrong, it's... There's nothing wrong with a dramatic conversion. The Apostle Paul had one. There's nothing wrong with prayers of repentance. That's where the Christian journey begins. But those events in and of themselves are not sufficient. The Bible regularly warns against false starts, false conversions. It warns against grand gestures and champions quiet, resolute faith. The important question that the Bible wants us to ask is where will you be a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now? And these are the issues that are addressed in Jeremiah 34 and 35. Uh, Two competing examples are set forth, one of grand but short-lived obedience and one example of quiet, persistent endurance. And one thing we're going to see is that even though these two chapters take place years apart and actually in reverse order historically, they are meant to be read together. You see, the book of Jeremiah isn't arranged chronologically. It's arranged thematically. Both of these chapters take place before the exile that we read about in in chapter 28. Chapter 34 takes place under Zedekiah, who was was king at the time uh, of the exile. Chapter 35 takes place under uh, his brother and predecessor, Jehoiakim, about 10 years earlier. But read together, these two chapters present a stark contrast between a a flash-in-the-pan obedience and an enduring, persistent obedience. One is dismissed, even despised by God, and the other is championed because it reflects God's own persistence and endurance. In many ways, the book of Jeremiah is about being reshaped by the word of God. And our passage today makes it clear that God doesn't just want your, your day today to be shaped by his word, but your whole life to be shaped by his word. And so first we're going to look at these two models of obedience, and then we're going to look at God's response to each one, and then finally I, I want to spend a few minutes at the end making some reflections on what kind of persistence God is and isn't calling you to. And So that's what we want to look at today as we look at these uh, two chapters. 
Jeremiah 34 uh, focuses on King Zedekiah and those in Jerusalem. God told the king that he was giving this land into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and that the king would be captured and imprisoned. And as Nebuchadnezzar's armies are, are coming at the, uh, upon Jerusalem, Zedekiah realizes God's word is coming true. And so in a last-ditch attempt to appease uh, God's anger, uh, he, he recognizes that for years and years they had not followed the Jubilee. They had not let the farmland lie follow one year out of seven, as they were commanded to do. And they had not released their slaves every seven years, their Hebrew slaves, as God's law required. So the king, in this last-ditch effort, says, he makes a proclamation, chapter 34, verse 8, to set all the Hebrew slaves, male and female, free. And the people obeyed in this great, grand act of humility and repentance. This is impressive because slave labor is cheap. Setting slaves free is costly. But here they, they, they say, we need to obey God. We're going we're to give up our free labor. We won't enslave our brothers and sisters. They let them go. It's impressive, even if it was late in coming. But it was short-lived. No sooner had they let the people go than they panicked and went and took them back. Once again, they subjected their brothers and sisters to slavery. They acted like Pharaoh, who who would let the Jews go one minute and then turn right around and regret that and go back and enslave them again. And so the repentance is is like that that seed in the parable that that sprouts up quickly and is impressive, but then that sun comes, scorches it, and it perishes quickly and disappears. There was initial, an initial and impressive act of devotion, but it was not lasting. It quickly faded. There's a very different story in chapter 35 where we meet the Rechabites. So let's turn to chapter 35 and read the first 11 verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habaziah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Igdaliah, the man of God which was near the chamber of the officials above the chamber of Messiah, son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and to not build houses to dwell in. 
We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents. We have obeyed and done all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came upon up against the land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. The Rechabites were a tribe from among the Israelites, and they were known for their metalworking skills. So if you needed your chariot or a tool, a farm tool or whatever repaired, they were your guys. They were nomadic. They lived in tents. They'd wander from town to town. They'd, they'd repair what needed to be repaired and then go on to the next town. That's how they made their living. And they were known for their abstinence from wine. 250 years earlier, before the days of Jeremiah, one of their leaders named Jonadab had issued a command that no one would drink wine, live in a house, or plant a farm. So for 250 years, that's what they had done. For 250 years, they were abstinent from from alcohol. They were sojourners. They were wanderers. And God decided to test their resolve. Because of Nebuchadnezzar's attack on the land, the Rechabites were camping in Jerusalem inside the city walls nearby to where Jeremiah was. And so God told Jeremiah, invite them to the temple and offer them some wine. Think of the setting. They're surrounded by the grandeur of the temple, probably overwhelmed by the most impressive building in the land. Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, is sitting before them, putting pitchers, plural, of wine before them and says, drink. How easy would it be to say, when in Rome, the prophet says. But that's not their response. They didn't make a big deal about it. They didn't attack Jeremiah. They simply said, For 250 years, our way has been obedience to the command of Jonadab. How could we change course now? They embodied resolve, persistent obedience. So what were God's thoughts on these two groups of people? The ones we find in chapter 34 and the Rechabites we find in chapter 35. To those who released their slaves only to change their mind, he had a fitting response. He said, You have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. I will make you a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth. If they would not give their neighbors liberty from slavery, God would give them liberty from their lives. They would endure the sword, they would endure famine, they would endure pestilence. If they wanted to behave like Pharaoh, God will treat them how he treated Pharaoh. They had no view for the long term. They didn't care about persistence. And so God's judgment was was fitting, uh, a fitting response to their priorities. He said, I will give you into the hands of your enemies and into the hand of those who seek your lives. Your dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. It's as if God is saying, you don't care about the future? Then I'll take it from you. You're going to be devoured by birds. You'll disappear and you'll be remembered no more. 
Those who were consumed with the pleasures of today and gave no thought for tomorrow would find a tomorrow that gave no thought to them. But what about those peculiar Rechabites in chapter 35? God had a very different response for them. Initially, his response isn't even to the Rechabites. He holds up the Rechabites as a model of persistence and asks those in Jerusalem, where's your persistence? Where's your obedience? Here's a people who have obeyed hard commands for 250 years, but those in Jerusalem can't follow through with one basic command for more than a few days. The commands of the Rechabites that they followed were from their father. How much more important should be the commandments of God? But then at the end of the chapter, God does speak to the Rechabites. He says this to them, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. God says he would reward their persistence by persistently keeping them in his presence. He would reward their persistence with his own. The Rechabites were a model of consistency. There's nothing flashy about this. They probably never made the evening news. There was never a headline in Israel that read something like, the Rechabites are still doing what they've been doing for a century. More at 11. They were probably seen as peculiar, odd, discounted, forgotten. But God saw in them a simple beauty in that dull, boring, faithful persistence. So what's the point of all this? God is not interested in grand gestures, but in what one philosopher called a long obedience in the same direction. The reason God is pleased with persistence is because he is a persistent God. Listen to what he says in chapter 35. I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers, but you did not incline your ear to listen to me. God has been persistently warning his people. He's been persistently calling them to repent. For hundreds of years, he has been faithful and long-suffering. It's who he is. And so God uses the Rechabites as a model for his people to see what persistence looks like. He's not saying that you should never have a home or you should never drink wine. Don't plant a garden. That's not the point. The point is, is their abiding character, a tenacity that that does not easily get derailed. Only such persistence is fitting for those who are made in the image of a persistent God. 
Now, I do need to be careful here. It could sound like I'm saying that our persistence is how we earn God's favor and His abiding presence. It could sound like I'm saying that we save ourselves through our persistence, and that's not what I'm saying, and it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is 100% clear that our hope for salvation lies not in our persistence, but in God's. As we read, he persistently pursued his people, calling them out of their sin. He persistently offered a way of escape if they would just turn to him for mercy and grace. And then he came into this world, he became man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he embodied persistence. Think about Jesus' life. He patiently taught people the truth, even when no one wanted to hear it. He endured patiently as he stood before corrupt leaders who presumed to stand in judgment over him. He quietly submitted to a pagan ruler who sat in the seat of power over the promised land. And he did not flinch. He did not yield as they led him to the hill of his his execution. And even in death, he did not give up but rose again on the third day. And what are we told in Hebrews? That even to this day, he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. That's persistence. It's the persistence that accomplishes our salvation. That is your hope. That is your only hope. So if God is not calling you to earn his favor, to earn your salvation by your persistence, what is he calling you to? He's calling you to cling to Jesus and not let go. It means not just clinging to him when times are hard and then conveniently forgetting about him as soon as everything gets better. It means not just following him when it doesn't cost you, when it's easy. How often do we tell ourselves things like, I think religion is important and I'll probably focus on it more when I have a family, when I get older and settled, when I have more time and I can really pour myself into it. God's not impressed. If you want a model of what persistent faith looks like, Jacob would be a great model. One night he was at a crossroads in his life. God appeared to him as a man, and the two wrestled. Actually got down on the ground and wrestled all through the night. And as dawn drew close, God told Jacob to let him go. But finally, for the first time in his life, Jacob realized that he held God in his arms. And so he refused. He clung tight. He held on. He did not give up. The Lord crippled him, put his hip out of socket, and yet he persisted. God says, let go of me. Jacob says, no. I need you. And God's like, you finally get it. He was pleased. And he blessed him. And he renamed him. That is the persistence that God blesses when we cling to him 
knowing our hope and blessing are found nowhere else but him alone. That's the persistence God's calling you to. Beloved, you will be tested. If if our society keeps going on the trajectory it's on, you will be tested quite severely. But either way, you will be tested. Trials will come. Suffering will make its, its presence known in your life. You will have questions. You will be tempted to look for an easy way out, a way of comfort. But you must persist. You must hold on. Refuse to let go. You have to cling to Jesus because there is hope in no other. Persistence includes obedience because true faith obeys. If you truly love the Lord, you will do what he says. It doesn't just obey for a day or two, hoping to appease God. Persistent faith leads to persistent obedience. But that obedience doesn't save you. The only way to stand before God on the last day is to cling to Jesus. To put your hope in him. And if you do... He will be your advocate before the Father. He will plead your case. If you cling to him, you shall never lack a man to stand before God on your behalf. As Jesus prepared to endure the mistreatment of those who hated him, on that final night with his disciples, he said this, I am the vine, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide. That's an enduring word. It's not something you do quickly and then you're done. It's an invitation to cling to Jesus, knowing that apart from him, you can do nothing and you have nothing. But did you notice the language? Jesus doesn't just say, abide with me. He says, abide in me. What he envisions is something so close that we can say, we are in him and he is in us. It's an image of consuming one another. That's his language, not mine. A little earlier in the Gospel of John, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And what he envisioned was the Lord's Supper where we take pictures of his body and his blood and we receive them, saying that that I am so dependent upon him that apart from him being in me, I have no hope. The Lord's Supper tells us that we cannot keep God at a safe distance and belong to him. We're either all in or we're all out. We, like Jacob before us, learn to say, take everything else if you must, but I will not let go. As we take the bread and the wine, this is what we confess. That following Jesus is not something that is flashy and exciting. It's not over and done with. It is a way of life. It defines us. It's an identity. It's lifelong. 
hold on. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know us. You know how much we are drawn to what is flashy, to what is exciting, and how much we struggle to persist each day in doing what is right, what pleases you. But you, you embody persistence. You never tire of doing what is right, of loving what is true. And we long to be more like you. Teach us to not just seek you when times are hard. Teach us not to grow tired of doing what is right. Teach us to persist in clinging to you each and every day. For we have no hope apart from you. All of this we ask through the persistent one, Jesus Christ, who did all things for our salvation. Amen.